scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hand see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, thank you, first of all, uh, on behalf of my family, for, uh, for those of you that know, my mother-in-law passed away suddenly uh, about a month and a half ago. Thank you for praying for us. It's continued to be a difficult time. Thank you for those of you that have sent uh, cards. It's been encouraging to hear uh, from you, to see your names, uh, to think of your faces. So thank you for praying for us. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, our passage, as you saw, is a little bit shorter. Last time I made you all read a chapter, so I thought I'd take it easy this time. We just do a couple verses. Uh, we are jumping in to the book of John for this Easter Sunday. It's a book written, as verse 31 just explained, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the King who was to come, the Son of God. And that you might not just know that fact, but that you might know him and have life in his name. It's a book that was written by a close companion of Jesus, one of his closest friends, one of the disciples, who would later become one of the apostles, John. And he wrote this to pass on to the church, and not just to the church, but to those who are not yet part of the church, the hope that shaped his life. And he's writing near the very end of his life, looking back on what Jesus has meant to him, the impact that it's had on his life, the facts of Jesus and how they changed him. It's a book actually written for those who didn't necessarily believe the way he believes. It's written for those who were skeptical, in fact, who had doubts that Jesus could be God that he was this promised king and savior who was to come, that he rose from the dead even. It's written for people who struggle with these things. So if you're struggling with those things this morning, you're finding that scripture is actually anticipating the very things that you would struggle with, that someone thousands of years ago was thinking about you. And chapter 20 is actually the climactic moment of this whole book. And what does that chapter focus on? It focuses on doubt. 
on skepticism. John closes the entirety of his whole book near the end of his life, near the end of his ministry, on doubt. And so we're going to focus this morning on how this passage speaks to our own doubts, to the doubts of our friends and family members, our co-workers and neighbors, to the things that we wrestle with, if we're really honest with ourselves, in those moments that we slow down and are real with our hearts before God. We're going to talk about how Jesus actually draws us from those doubts to faith by way of breakthrough. And we're going to do that by looking at three things. First, a painful situation in verses 24 to 26. Then an unexpected solution in verses 26 through 28. And finally, a surprising declaration in 29 to 31. So a painful situation, an unexpected solution, and a surprising declaration. Now before we get into those things, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray and invite God to fill up our time together. Father, this is your house, this is your world, this is your universe. It all belongs to you. It was all made by you. We sit under that goodness, God, that you made us good, and yet we fell out of that goodness, God. Each of us in some way, shape, or form knows that this world is not the way it was meant to be, that some part of us is not the way that we were meant to be, and yet, God, we can stare that in the face. We can make our best efforts, our best plans. We can put the full weight of our life into changing those things and recognize that at some level we are deeply helpless. At some level, we don't necessarily believe that you will come and fix it. At some level, we doubt that you are really for us, that you are still good, that you are still God, that you still care about us. God, meet us in our doubts and fears this morning. Meet these hearts that you know, though I do not. May they hear your voice and not mine, Holy Spirit. May they know your presence and your power. May those who do not yet know you this morning know the goodness of your name. May they find life in your name for the first time, Jesus. And if not today, would you begin that journey with them? Because we believe that you are faithful. And those that you mean to have, those that you will save, you save. So it's in your name, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to keep them open to John 20. We're going to move through the passage a little bit. If you don't have one, there should be a hardback black one in the pew in front of you, or feel free to use uh, your apps or just listen along as the church has always done. But let's jump in to verses 24 and 26, or through 26 first, this painful situation for the disciples. Uh, life had unquestionably taken a painful, tragic turn for this group of friends. Jesus, their, their friend, their leader, their teacher, their hope for all of their lives, they had put everything behind him, all that they had, they had given up to follow him. This man was brutally beaten and executed, crucified which was a form of public and capital execution in that day. This is not mob justice. This was capital punishment. Jesus was crucified, his hands and his feet pierced, nailed to a cross where he was killed slowly over hours in front of the entire city for allegedly being a rival to Caesar and allegedly being a rival to God. That brutal moment that his friends witnessed, imagine your friend being publicly executed and you are there to see it. This is only three days after that happens to them. 
It's only three days before our passage takes place. It's still fresh on their minds. This is still scarring over in them. Life has become bitter and broken. Nothing is the way that it used to be. Maybe some of you can identify with that feeling. In verses 19 to 23 that immediately precede our chapter, the disciples were huddled together uh, in grief, shock, and fear. Their life had been turned upside down. Hope is lost. Life feels like it's over. They don't know if they're going to be arrested next, if they're going to be killed next. They don't know what's going to happen now. And suddenly, on the evening of that third day after their friend was brutally executed, Sunday, this day, Jesus just suddenly appears back from the dead with all the wounds to prove that it really was him. Imagine the shock of that for a moment. Imagine the joy that your friend, that someone you lost, someone you know right now, think of someone that you have lost. Imagine the joy if you could see them again today, if they just came walking in the back and sat down next to you. All of the sadness in a moment comes untrue. All of a sudden, life feels safe again. But in verse 24, we read that Thomas wasn't there that day, or at least at that time. He wasn't there when for them the nightmare ended. He only hears about it. And maybe like any of us, he can't believe it was true. Listen, people in ancient times were no more accustomed to the idea that someone gets out of the grave than we are. This would have been no less a shock for them than it is for us. They were not gullible people. We can't have chronological snobbery. They were human like we were human. People didn't get out of the grave for them just like they don't get out of the grave now, apart from the power of the resurrection. So Thomas is sitting there saying, what? I didn't see this. This isn't the way that things work. He says, in fact, there's no way he could believe. Verse 25, he says, never. Uh, it's very strong in the original language. By no means. There is nothing stronger he could say. This is him drawing a line in the sand and saying, no. No, 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 no. Not unless I were to see this person that you saw, unless I was to put my hands in the place where they executed him, where the nails went in, would I ever possibly believe? You can almost hear the, the pain and frustration in those words. Almost like Thomas is saying, please don't do this to me. After everything we just went through three days ago, now you want me to believe that my friend is not dead? Now you want to throw this at me? Please don't do this to me now. Thomas is still living this nightmare. He says that he will only wake up from this nightmare. He will only start believing if he could put his hands in the wounds, which is interesting because if you go back to verses 19 to 23, it doesn't seem like any of the other disciples did that. It doesn't seem like anyone actually touched him. This isn't something that they asked for. It's not something that Jesus invited them to do. Thomas in this moment of shock and frustration and pain, seems to be asking for something much more. He's setting a much higher bar for his belief even than for their belief. 
He seems to be saying this and this evidence alone is what could possibly make me change my mind. This is what I need to see. He's not willing to take someone else's word for it. Even the words of those people that he had sweat and bled and suffered with for years. He is not willing to trust them anymore. This and this alone, this one experience is what he needs to see if he is ever going to change his mind. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you have friends or family that feel that way. That I need to see this exact concrete proof or there is no way I could ever possibly believe. I don't know about for you, but it's very clear that for Thomas, that Jesus' death has crushed not just his spirit, but actually his ability to trust. These were not strangers. These, again, were, the peop- these were his brothers. These were the people that he had sweat and bled with for years, people he had built up trust with for years. He can't trust them anymore. There's a brokenness there in his relationship. He feels that all that he can trust now is what his eyes can see, what his hands can touch. All it seems that he thinks he can really trust is him. Something in Thomas has just snapped with this happening. He's experienced something that seems to make him question everything he has ever known everything he thought he knew to be true. And as a result, he is retreating into himself to feel safe, to feel some stability. That's actually a very common reaction to a traumatic thing happening in your life. I don't know if you've experienced something like that, if you've experienced a betrayal or a deep loss, but it's not uncommon to feel this way, to feel like you no longer know who or what to trust, and so you retreat into yourself. It throws you off balance, and it does, and it can break something in you. So Thomas is putting up a wall of doubt in this passage, in this proclamation of never. He's putting up a wall of doubt as a protection for himself against believing something that could possibly hurt him again, that could possibly shatter him when he already feels shattered so that he can feel safe. Doubt is Thomas's way of finding control. And that's a painful situation where the only person you can trust is you. The only way that you can feel safe is in here. This was a major crisis for Thomas. It's easy to think about doubting Thomas as this kind of paradigmatic character or to just think again about someone who's, who's just having a little bit of a hard time. This is someone who lost his friend brutally to public execution, and he is having a major crisis in life, and his faith is being impacted by that. That's a lonely place. Not just for Thomas, but it's a lonely place if you've ever known a situation like that. And though it's certainly a normal reaction to put up this kind of hedge of protection, this wall of doubt to protect yourself from feeling like you get hurt from trusting the wrong person or the wrong thing, doing that is not the way back to health. 
retreating into ourselves, walling ourselves off behind uh, a certain level of evidence, confidence, whatever it may be. Those things in and of themselves are not bad, but putting up that wall as our safety is not the way back to health. It's not the way to certainty. It's not the way to faith. Because though it may feel like doubt is protecting you, and it's true, if doubt is your certainty, you don't have to trust anyone else but you. You don't have to trust anything on paper unless you say it is what it should be. But it also closes you off from trusting someone else to be for you, to be for your good when you can't figure it out. It closes us off from trusting that there might be help again outside of ourselves when there isn't an answer, because sometimes there isn't. When everything is unclear, because sometimes it will be unclear, doubt closes us off from the risk of trusting others and what that entails, but it also closes us off from the reward of trusting others and what that entails, of having someone besides just you be for you, be for your good. So if you make doubt or skepticism your safe place, your certainty, the wall that you will sit behind to feel safe and in control, then everything depends on you. It's a lonely place. It all comes back to you. You have to get it right. You have to figure it out. You can't be mistaken because if it's all depending on you and it's behind this wall, no one is coming to the rescue. Because when we do that, we have closed others off from coming in. We can choose the way of doubt as certainty, as our protection. But let's be honest, what is to stop us from getting it wrong? Have you never been drastically wrong about something in your life? Have you never missed a key detail? Have you never overlooked an entire body of work, a whole different viewpoint? What was to keep Thomas from being wrong? Why would retreating into himself make him secure? Thomas is not known in the Gospels as the smartest, as the most evidence-based, as the wisest. Thomas is just known as the twin, right? He's known by his birth, not by his brain. Okay, what would make Thomas so undoubtedly reliable? And though we like to think of ourselves that way because we have done hard work, because we feel that we are those who would do good things, because we have a lot of letters behind our names, because we're in prestigious programs, prestigious jobs, because we have ambitions for those those things, that we won't somehow make these mistakes. But we are not infallible. Doubt would deceive you if it would tell you that. So protection may not be out there, but it is no more guaranteed in here. Doubt cannot keep you safe. And not that we can't struggle with doubt, and I have doubt at times. Doubts are normal. This passage invites us to bring our doubts to God, that God expects that we will doubt. But the question is, where is doubt taking you? 
Is it taking you to others and to God, to something life-giving, or is it taking you further and further away from others behind a wall that seems like it protects you when mostly what it does is close you off? Where is doubt leading you? Is it really leading you where it promises to lead you, to that place of flourishing, security, certainty? Or do we feel more and more isolated, alone, tenuous? Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, wrestling with doubt like Thomas wrestled with doubt. Whether you have never been a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for years, whether you've been a Christian for a few days or a few months, maybe that's where you are this morning, wrestling with doubt. Can this be real? Do people come back from the dead? Was Jesus really God? You're hungry for certainty and stability, and yet hesitant at the same time to trust others, especially when it comes to faith. If so, I want to tell you, you are in good company, and also I want to tell you, this is not the end of your story any more than it was the end of Thomas's story. Because doubt wasn't the end for Thomas. Doubt was just where Jesus found him. And the same may be true for you. Doubt is not the end for you. Doubt may just be where Jesus finds you. Jesus comes to Thomas not after his doubts are over, but right in the middle of them, right at their peak. And this is still who he is. Our passage shows us God expects us to doubt, and he breaks through our doubts, but often not in the way that we expect. And this turns us to our second point, an unexpected solution in verses 26 through 28. Jesus' response of breakthrough to Thomas's crisis of faith, to this, this wall of doubt that he's putting up, is unexpected on a lot of different levels. Uh, first, it's unexpected because he doesn't just respond to Thomas's request to put his hands where the holes were or in his side. He adds on more. Uh, Jesus walks through a wall, and this is not like Jesus putting his shoulder into it, and this mud wall comes down, and he is dirty, and he's kind of brushing himself off. He walks through the wall as a miracle, like it was vapor, like it was just a cloud that he could pass through, and he is in their midst. Thomas didn't ask for that. That wasn't on Thomas's list of things that he needs to see to make him stop doubting. Jesus is adding more on, more than even Thomas would ask for. It's as if Thomas is saying this high, and Jesus says, okay, how about higher? How about we go a little bit higher than that? He is exceeding what Thomas can expect. And after he does something that no human can do, no one in here, I'm not going to challenge you to do this, but none of us could walk through the wall right now. He does something in our text that no human can do, and after he does that, then he invites Thomas to do what he didn't hear Thomas ask for. Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas makes this declaration that this is what I have to see. Jesus wasn't there. So he does something else that no other human could do, which is to know the thoughts of a human heart without actually being there to hear them. He says, here, Thomas, I know what you wanted. I know what you want to see. I know where you are. Touch. See. This is me. I am back. Take that in for a minute. Put yourself in Thomas's shoes and see the unexpected, overwhelming nature of what just happens. 
Jesus does first what no human can do, and he walks through a wall. Second, he's back from the dead, right? How? Right? You were brutally executed and killed. I saw you die. I saw them bury you and seal the stone and put you in a tomb that you couldn't get out of if you were just killed in that way. And then he knew about Thomas's doubt. How could you know that if you weren't here? This is an overwhelming moment. This is sensory overload. Jesus gives him way more than he expects and more than he can really handle or understand Thomas can see the proof that he wanted in this moment, but his brain doesn't have categories to make sense for what he is seeing. Because he is facing in this moment not the list of what he said is possible, but what the list of what God says is possible. He's not facing just the human. He is facing the divine. He is not facing just the temporary. He is facing the transcendent God stepping in before him and his categories are melting under his feet. Jesus is pushing Thomas to a place where the reality of his transcendence is just crashing over the walls that he has put up of doubt. He's flooding his reality with a higher reality. He is going beyond what Thomas can possibly expect. See, Thomas thought that his problem was that his friend Jesus was dead and his friends were either lying to him or they were totally deceived. Now he has to deal with the fact that not only is one, Jesus alive, and two, his friends were right, but now Jesus is not anything like he knew him before. He did not know Jesus to walk through walls before. He is something totally different. Something very different is happening that Thomas can't quite anticipate. His categories are starting to break. See, this is what God does with us. He blows away our categories. However high we make the walls of our doubts, He just walks right through them. Because our minds can't comprehend all that God could possibly do, all that God could possibly be. Christianity is a big God. It is not a lowercase g God. God is bigger than we can imagine. If you don't understand God, I would say, good, you might be on the right track. If we ever think that we can totally grasp the totality of who God is and what He is like, not that we can't know Him truly, but if we ever think that we could put our arms around all that, it's probably not God that we have. It's our own creation. Thomas is starting to bump up to the real God. This is what God does. When Jesus makes himself known, the resurrected Son of God in the flesh, what we thought we need to know shifts. It changes in the face of who he is. Just look at Thomas. Thomas changes and shifts by his own standards. The text says nothing about Thomas actually putting his fingers into Jesus' side or into his hands. He never touches him. He said, if I'm going to believe, I need to touch him. Thomas believes without ever touching him. He just makes this declaration, my Lord and my God. The text never says that he actually touched him. Faith just hits him then and there without the proof, without the physical touching that he said that he needed to have, without the standards, without the doubt and the certainty that he thought he needed to have, faith just comes for him then and there. 
unexpected. What he said he needed to believe, in the end, he didn't actually need. He didn't expect to feel the way that he would feel. There's no way he could have anticipated what he needed. But Jesus melts his categories and he has changed in ways that his doubts could not have anticipated. And the same thing can be true for you and I. When God moves, our doubts cannot stand in the way. They just melt. They just evaporate. They turn into air as he passes and breaks through. If God means to have you, he will have you. No matter how high your wall of doubt, no matter how deep your fears, no matter how many your sins, he will just step through these things to have you. If he means to have you, that's what the resurrection shows us. He will have you. It's the unexpected category-defying nature of who Jesus is that gives us this bedrock testimony that if he means to have you, he will have you. That's what we see in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. In the incarnation, the eternal Son of God, transcendent, glorious, eternal, took on human flesh like your hands, like my hands, became lowly, tangible, humble. He took on limits and suffering to walk among us. Do you see that he means to have you? In the crucifixion, he suffered and died in our place, bearing the just penalty for the sins that we couldn't, and if we're honest, didn't want to get rid of, to reconcile us back to himself, to bring us back into relationship. He broke through the separation of sin and death at the cross. They could not stand in his way. Do you see how he means to have you? In the resurrection, Jesus was raised up to life so that we might not just be excused for our sins, pardoned for our sins, and then left alone, but brought back into family with God, reconciled and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. This Sunday, this is the day that he broke through the separation of the grave. Do you see that he intends to have you back no matter where you go, no matter no matter how far your sins take you away from him, no matter if death takes you away from him, no matter if you just put someone in the ground, he means to have you back and wherever you are, he will come for you. That's the promise of the resurrection. When God moves, our doubts our failures, our fears, our sins, whatever separates us from Him cannot possibly stand in the way. Because, and this leads us to our final point here, His saving us, even from our own doubts, doesn't actually depend on us. If we look at verses 29 and 31 here, we see uh, Jesus' surprising declaration of how this is true that God's salvation doesn't depend on us. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. This comes out in verse 29 and what Jesus says to Thomas there. It says, have you believed because you have seen me? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is saying it's not only possible to believe in me without seeing me 
without setting your own standards of proof, without writing your own list like Thomas of what you think you need to see for God to save you. It's not only possible to believe him, to be saved without that, it's actually better. Blessed is a condition of full life and enjoyment. He is saying not blessed are those who see, blessed better are those who believe without seeing. This is the surprising declaration of verse 29, that those who have not seen and yet have believed, that's any of you who believe today, you are in a better position, not a worse position than Thomas. You may wish you could see, if you're a Christian, what Thomas saw. I wish I could have that kind of proof. If you're not a Christian, you may wish you could see what Thomas saw. And Jesus is saying that is settling for less, not more. Seeing as believing is settling for less from God and not more from God. There's more for you in believing without seeing, believing that He means to have you. Because again, God shatters our categories. You may think you want more in seeing Jesus, but He says you're settling for less because He wants to give you something more than a see-it-to-believe-it kind of faith. He wants to give you a certainty outside of your eyeballs, outside of your hands and your feet, outside of the experience, outside of the data, outside of whatever you could cobble together and try to hold on to. He wants to give you a certainty of faith greater than that. Jesus wants to give you a hope that endures when your categories melt underneath your feet. When you encounter something in life that you never expected to encounter, when your life has just shifted miles to the left, He wants to give you something that holds up when you can't see, when you don't understand, when the experience isn't there. This is what Thomas's heart touches in this passage, a certainty, a hope outside himself. What he encounters is a certainty that can hold him not a certainty just that He can hold. This is what Jesus wants to give you because your salvation never depended on you holding on to Him. It depends on Him holding on to you. Do you have a certainty this morning that doesn't just see the facts, that doesn't just see the evidences, that doesn't see the proofs and clings on to those and hopes to hold on? Do you have a hope? Do you have a faith that holds on to you even when you can't hold on? That's what Jesus getting out of the grave shows you, that you have a hope that holds on to you, that no matter where you go, He will hold on to you. Do you have a hope that holds on to you? Christians, are we living like we have a hope that holds on to you? I'll be honest, there are many times this week I have not lived like I have a hope that holds on to me. But this is the hope that we have, not the hope of lifeless facts or even a miraculous event that we could witness one time and then hope to cling on to or be lost. We have the certainty of a Savior, of a real person who still has hands and feet with the scars in them, the real certainty of a person who will cling on to you, who will hold on to you in good times or bad. No matter how far you run, He will hold on to you and bring you back. Because He wants us not just to have the facts. Yes, Christianity is about the facts. The world was changed by the facts of Jesus, but it doesn't stop at the facts. Sometimes we forget that. 
No, He wants us not to just believe in Him. He wants us to have Him. He wants you to have relationship with Him. He wants you to know resurrected Him, eternal, glorious, powerful, triumphant Him. He wants you back with Him. This is about regaining what we lost The cross undoes what sin did. What did sin most fundamentally do? It separated us from God. What is the cross and the resurrection most fundamentally about? Bringing us back, reconciling us to God. He doesn't want you to have facts about Him. He wants you to have Him. And He makes sure that you will have Him. The point of all of this of the entirety of the Christian life, of the resurrection, the end of your journey of faith is meant to bring you not to a set of facts, but to a person, to Jesus, to His door, to His house, to, as verse 31 says, to life with Him in His name. So take Him, collapse into Him as the one whose transcendent glory and grace can pass through all the walls of your doubts and your failures and your fears that can hold you when you can't hold yourself. And by way of closing, I want to give you two practical things to do in light of this this week. The first I want to encourage you to do is to doubt your doubts. Does the doubt in your heart this week, the doubt in your family's heart, really have your or their best interests at heart? Ask yourself, where is my doubt taking me? If I take this all the way down the line, does this lead me closer to others and to God, to wholeness, to flourishing, to trusting others? Or does this lead me more and more into isolation? Can I be so sure that I won't make a mistake? Why is it that my question can't be undone? Why should I only trust me? And get to the fear behind our doubts. It was fear behind Thomas's doubt. His world was breaking. His life was breaking apart. There was fear at the bottom of that. What am I afraid of that's bringing this doubt up for me? And how can I bring that maybe to something outside of me? Back, not huddled into me, not closing in on myself, but how do I move back out again towards God? So doubt your doubts even just a little bit this week. And I want to encourage you finally to trust that Jesus will come for you. It took eight agonizing, doubt-filled days for Thomas to finally see Jesus, for faith to finally come for him. But trust that though you may wrestle now like Thomas, though doubts may linger for a period of time that feels like an eternity to you, he will come for you. Nothing can stand in the way of him if he means to have you. Jesus walked through Thomas's doubts like they were that wall, like it was nothing, like it was no big deal, no obstacle at all. Remember, Thomas said that he could never believe. Maybe you've said that. Maybe someone in your family has said that. I could never believe. When God wants to move, he just moves. Trust that He is still God, that He is still transcendent, that He is still bigger than our categories. Because for Thomas, faith was simply delayed, not denied. 
And for all those that Jesus means to save, your faith, though you go through periods of doubt, may simply be delayed, not denied. Because Christ will not be denied His people. Trust that He will come for you because He gives us a certainty outside of ourselves, outside of our own work, outside of our own worry, outside of our own ability, certainty in Him, Him who died and rose. He can hold you. So however strong you think your doubts or your skepticism may be, maybe like Thomas's or even stronger, trust. Just move slightly outside of yourself, 1% away from doubt if you can. Trust that He can hold you, that these things are no obstacle to God when He shows up and just shatters our categories. Trust that what He said in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection are true, that He really means to come for you. As God spoke through Isaiah, let the one who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. Let's pray. God, we thank You that you expect our doubts, that you know how we wrestle, that you are not insensitive to the pain that we have, to the confusion, the frustration, to the distance between ourselves and understanding you. God, we, we know that you know that the facts do matter, that the resurrection mattered, that the crucifixion mattered, that we do need to know and see these things, but God, lead us to you. Lead us beyond a certainty in, in simple facts to what lies beyond them, to you. And God, we just confess that there are so many ways that we have made doubts a huge wall between us and you, a wall that we imagine you could never scale, a wall we don't want you to scale. God, we confess the hardness of our hearts in these things where we have made you small and we have made our doubts so big. We just ask that you would come get us now. Would you come pick us up because we need you. We are weak and weary. We are those in darkness who have no light. God, teach us to trust in your name and to rely on our God. Amen.